Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in crime and punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains, the curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Louis Marcos. He is professor of English at Houston Baptist University, the Robert Ray Chair in the Humanities there. His many books include From Achilles to Christ, Why Christians Should Read the Pagan Classics, and On the Shoulders of Hobbits, The Road to Virtue with Tolkien and Lewis. His latest book is the topic of today's podcast, The Myth Made Fact, Reading Greek and Roman Mythology Through Christian Eyes. Professor Marcos, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Well, first of all, why, good sir, should Christians read pagan stuff? I mean, do they really need to read about these... um, uh, shepherds cavorting with one another and Zeus, uh, you know, going all over the place. To, uh, tell us. Well, I'll tell you, it, it all comes down to a very important theological distinction, one that is shared by Catholics and Calvinists alike. We all know there's a distinction between special revelation and general revelation. Special revelation is when God speaks directly the way he did to the Jews, to the prophets, uh, to the writers of the Old Testament and New Testament, and, prim- and supremely through Christ himself. But I know what always used to bother me, and maybe it bothered you, that are you telling me that before the coming of Christ, that God ignored 99% of humanity and only communicated to the Jews? Well, only to the Jews did he give special or direct revelation. But to the rest of the world, God spoke through what theologians call general revelation. That's the way God speaks through creation, the way he speaks through our conscience, the way he speaks through reason, and also the way he speaks through imagination. C.S. Lewis once said, God spoke through conscience and nature and through what he called the good dreams of the pagans. The reason we say that all truth is God's truth is that God's truth does filter through this general revelation. It's not perfect. It's not like the Bible. And thank God we have the Bible as our measuring, our touchstone, our our yardstick to measure the general revelation. But there is truth. We are all made in the image of God. We're fallen, but we're all in God's image. And so some of God's truth and goodness and beauty as well can be found in all cultures, all places, all religions. And one of the places where we get a lot of that goodness, truth, and beauty is in these myths that people have been telling for thousands and thousands of years. Their yearning for God is often captured in sort of a shadowy language in those myths. And if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, we can often read those myths and extract great truths. 
And Mark, I'm not just saying we should read Greek myths so we can come up with clever sermon illustrations. I'm saying that by reading Greek myths and wrestling with them, we can actually learn something that will be of value for Christian believers. It's not just something, okay, I've got nothing better to do. We need to reach out and use our mind to collect all those you know, fragments that are spread out throughout cultures, and that will help us to understand that Jesus truly is the Savior of the world and not just of the Jewish people. Well, was this much like the arguments of those Renaissance humanists who were saying, no, no, we don't, we don't leave the pagan world behind here now that we've had the, the special revelation? Did, did they say a version of this? You know, Mark, there was a great book came out 50 or 60 years ago called Christ and Culture by H. Richard Niebuhr. He was the brother of Reinhold Niebuhr, and I believe he was quite a bit more orthodox than his brother. And in that great book that's still very timely, he talked about five different ways of looking at the relationship between Christ and the sort of wider, secular, even Greco-Roman culture. And the two extremes were Christ against culture and Christ of culture. Christ against culture would be the sort of Amish Old Testament way of doing things where you keep yourself separate from the unbelievers and make your little enclave, right? Maybe even like living in a monastery or something where you're separate from the world. On the other side is Christ of culture, which is a little bit closer to the sort of theological liberalism where whatever the world is doing, you just accept it and maybe slightly Christianize it. But in the middle, he put three different options, and the option I want to focus on, and actually he, he claims it's, it's the more Catholic option, the stuff we would see in the writing of Father Richard John Newhouse. He called it Christ over culture. And this is the idea that if we study culture and we can get to the truth that's at the core of it, we can lift it up, take it up into the fuller truth of Christ, so that instead of a wall dropping down, it can be a ladder where certain things can be taken and lifted up. After all, Moses was trained in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and Daniel was trained in all the wisdom, first of the Babylonians and then of the Persians. And so, uh, again, if we handle this in the proper way, we can reach out and find sort of nuggets of gold that we can take up into Christ. You may be familiar, Mark, that a lot of the older Christians spoke of this as despoiling the Egyptians. Uh, when God, under Moses, took the Jews out of uh, slavery in Egypt, as they were leaving, he told them, go to your Egyptian neighbors and ask them to give you their gold and whatnot. And so they took that gold, and that's what they mean by despoiling the Egyptians. And the idea was that we can take their treasures, but take them up and use them for Christ. You know, in England, uh, the Venerable Bede uh, talked about how some of the early Christians in England were able to take old pagan places, and what they would do is sort of, you know, desecrate them of their pagan thing, and as, as it were, exercise them, and then reconsecrate them for use for Christ. And so here's this idea of how we can take these treasures and offer them to God and take them up into the fullness of the Christian truth. When we look at someone like Dante and, and Michelangelo, this is why we find the, uh, the pagan materials in their deeply Christian work? I love that. A, a good example, sort of a visual example of what I'm trying to do in my book 
is the Sistine Chapel, right? And if you stand there and you look up at the Sistine Chapel, right along the central sort of backbone of the ceiling are the giant frescoes. And interestingly, those frescoes only take you from creation to fall to the flood. Notice, Mark, that all of those images that are at the center are what we might call pre-Jewish. In other words, they're pre-Abraham. The first 11 chapters of Genesis before the calling of Abraham are very much universal, God working with all the people. So that's what he puts in the center. Then around them are giant frescoes of the prophets, Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Daniel, all around. But here's the crazy thing. Interspersed in between those Old Testament prophets are the sibyls and oracles of ancient Greece and Rome, the famous oracle of Delphi, the Cumaean sibyl, who was the one who led Aeneas through the underworld in, in uh, Book 6 of the Aeneid. What the heck are those pagan priestesses doing up there interspersed with these great Jewish prophets? Well, the idea is that although only the Jewish prophets spoke clearly of the coming of the Christ, God also spoke through general revelation, through the sibyls and oracles, preparing the pagan people, particularly the Greeks and Romans, preparing them for the coming of Christ. And it all comes together. You know, Mark, all four of my grandparents were born in Greece and emigrated to America. So I'm, I'm, I'm 100% Greek. And so this is sort of my story as well. When Paul went to Athens, it's Acts chapter 17, during his second missionary journey, he goes to Athens and he sees that the Athenians have temples, right, to every single god. He even notices they have a temple to an unknown god. And Mark, when Paul saw that, he thought to himself, ah, now I understand this Marcos podcast. I know what I'm going to do, right? And so he goes up to the Areopagus, where there used to be a, a political body. By this point, it was more of a cultural, social body. Let's look at the new ideas. These were the Stoics and Epicureans, the academics of their day. Tell us what this new teaching is. Uh, it's tickling our ears. And so Paul comes up and he says, O oh, men of Athens, which is the way Socrates would begin his speech, O oh, men of Athens, I can see that in all ways you are a very religious people, for I see that you have altars to all gods. Notice he doesn't say uh, idols, he tries to make a bridge, and he says, I notice you even have an altar to an unknown god. And then Mark, Paul speaks the words that I believe the entire Greco-Roman world was waiting to hear. He said, now therefore, what you worship in ignorance, I will proclaim to you as known, right? For the Lord God does not dwell in human in hand in the temples made by human hands, but out of one man he created all the races of men. He set their times and places that they might reach and grope after him, though he is not far from any of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as your own poets, your own pagan poets have said, we are his offspring. Now, a lot of people don't realize that Paul is quoting two different pagan prophets, one of really poets, one named Epimenides said, in him we live and move and have our being. A different one named Maratus said, we are his offspring. In the original poem, the he and the him are a reference to Zeus. But Paul is suggesting that without knowing it, they're speaking a truth that points beyond their pagan idol to the true God, to Yahweh, ultimately to the triune God. And so I really believe that that speech in Acts chapter 17 is sort of this climactic moment when Paul is saying, okay, 
you worshipped in ignorance, but you weren't completely ignorant. The way I like to put it, Mark, is the Bible says we see now dimly in a mirror. Well, maybe the pagans saw very dimly in a dirty mirror, but they saw something. And God sends Paul to help them finish the journey, to continue up the mountain until they reach the fullness of God's revelation. I find it very exciting. How does the faith journey of C.S. Lewis, which you speak of in your, in your early pages, how does that fit in here? Great. And in fact, it is because of that faith journey that I've got my title, The Myth Made Fact. Now, I would guess that most people listening probably are aware of the fact that C.S. Lewis was an atheist for many years before he became a Christian. But C.S. Lewis did not go directly from being an atheist to a Christian, as did uh, Chuck Colson and Lee Strobel and uh, Josh McDowell, all of whom, of course, were great apologists and evangelists. For Lewis, it was a two-step process. When he was about 30, he became a theist, a believer in God. But it took him another year or two before he came to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. What was holding him back? Well, one of the things that was holding him back is something near and dear to my heart, because like Lewis, I'm an English professor, and I am a great lover of mythology. Well, Lewis was a big fan of a book called The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser. Fraser was sort of the uh, Joseph Campbell of his day, a little bit of what we would call a Jungian analysis, where he looked at all the ancient people groups and he looked for connections. He looked at their rituals and their beliefs, and he was looking for what we call archetypes, certain images or rituals that appear again and again across culture and across time. And one of the ones he identified was the corn god, or today we usually call it the corn king. And uh, Fraser wrote this, and then from Fraser, Lewis saw that across the ancient world, there were these strange stories about sort of gods coming to earth, sons of God coming to earth and dying off in violent deaths, and not exactly a resurrection, but a return, a sort of seasonal return. So they were called the corn king because they were linked to the seasonal cycle of the corn, which is the word that British used to mean wheat. I'm not sure why. But so they were linked. Uh, when Stephen King wrote his famous uh, novel, The Children of the Corn, he was making a very clever pun on corn and wheat, except it really was corn out in the Midwest. So it's very, very clever of Stephen King for that title. But anyway, so uh, to, to give you uh, some names, uh, if you're a Greek, the name of your corn king is Adonis or Bacchus. If you're an Egyptian, you call him Osiris. If you're a Babylonian, you call him Tammuz. If you're a uh, Persian, you call him Mithras. If you're a Norseman, you call him Balder. There's this persistent story of this sort of cycle of life, death, and rebirth. And Lewis just took for granted that Jesus was the corn king of the Hebrews. Well, what's the big deal? What, what does the death of a rabbi 2,000 years ago have to do with me? And he was really struggling with this. And then one day, when he was about when he was 32 years old, he was taking a long night walk with two friends, one of whom was the great J.R.R. Tolkien, very strong Catholic. And as they were walking around the grounds of Magdalen College, Oxford, a beautiful tree-lined lane called Addison's Walk, one of my favorite places in the world. And while they were walking around, they were discussing this issue. And suddenly, Tolkien turned to Lewis and said, Lewis, did you ever think maybe the reason 
that Jesus sounds so much like a myth is that he's the myth that came true or the myth that became fact. He probably had in mind G.K. Chesterton, who called Jesus a true myth. And that radically changed. What does it mean? Okay, look, how is it possible that these people spread across the world all have this same basic story, this same desire? Doesn't it make sense that if we're all made in the image of the same God, that he put that desire in us, that manifested itself in all these strange tales, some of which are very bloody, spread out across the world? Well, if in fact God put in us that desire, doesn't it make sense that when God actually enacts our salvation, when he brings that yearning to fulfillment, that he will do it in a way that matches the desire of the ages? Mark, if remember, Jesus is not just the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and prophets. If he is indeed the Savior of the world, then he must also be a fulfillment of all the pagan yearnings of the ancient pagan pre-Christian people. And so, you see, if, if Jesus had come into the world and he fulfilled the Jewish yearning, the prophets, the law, but what he did spoke not at all to the pagans, it would seem like a foreign god had invaded us. But what we find, in fact, is that Jesus brings into real history, under Pontius Pilate, he brings into real history what only had mythic value amongst the pagans. And so I'm calling it the myth-made fact because I'm looking for those seeds of truth. It's kind of a sequel. I wrote a book called From Achilles to Christ, Why Christians Should Read the Pagan Classics, and there I focus on the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, and the Greek tragedies. And I've got a book on Plato coming out actually in the summer that will do the same thing. And what I wanted to do here is sort of go, if you will, go behind Homer to get to the deeper sources, because myths are sort of the raw material that poets and artists and even composers will use as they want to wrestle and struggle with human struggles and human ideas and human desires and all of that sort of stuff. So in some ways, I wanted to go even past Homer and the tragedians to go to the source that inspired them. And let's see what we can extract from these great myths that are, again, the raw material of so much of basically the arts in the Western world. Uh, the Golden Bough. Everyone should read a little bit of The Golden Bough. It's, it's, I mean, it it's is great, a, you know, a condensation. It's, it's a multi-volume, but those sections, yeah, on those dying and reviving gods. Um, Eliot thought, Pound thought, that the, this was a essential knowledge for the modern world. But to, to get to the book, uh, the format of the book is like a catalog of these myths that go into their significance, tell the story. Uh, you have reflections upon the myth and then applications. It's actually very useful for teachers. I could see teachers using this in undergraduate classrooms, but why don't we just go through a few of the myths and you can describe what you do uh, with them in the course of the book. The first one you talk about is Daedalus and Icarus. What about that one? Great, and, and that's the, and, and, you know, I always start with that because they came up with a beautiful cover for this book. And, and this book is, is a book and a textbook, so it can be used by teachers, homeschooling moms, but it, it can be used by preachers who are looking for 
a new angle, whatever, for their sermons. It can be used devotionally, read a chapter or two before you go to bed or in the morning and whatnot. It can be used by Bible study groups, things like that. And Daedalus and Icarus, you know, I started there because it's one of the best known, right? Uh, uh, Daedalus was the man, he was the great artificer of the ancient world. And he's the one who built the labyrinth to hold in the minotaur. But then the evil King Minos imprisoned Daedalus and his son Icarus in the labyrinth. And the only way out was a window, but that window overlooked a sheer drop into the ocean and death. So the only way to escape is if you could fly. And so Daedalus, the great artificer, you know, built a wooden frame, uh, took feathers from birds, used wax to attach the feathers, and made wings. And he told his son Icarus, Icarus, when we leave and fly, make sure you take a middle course. If you fly too low, the water from the ocean will drag you down. If you fly too high, the sun will melt the wax. And at first, Icarus listened to his father, but then he must have forgotten. He felt like a bird. He cast off the good advice of his father. And first he flew too low, and the water made his wings heavy and almost pulled him down. And then he reached out his arms and soared upward, higher and higher and higher, till he got so high that the heat from the sun melted the wax as the wax melted. The feathers flew off, and he kept flapping his wings in vain and plummeted to his death in the sea. Now, this teaches us, okay, that we need to find moderation, right, as what Aristotle would call the golden mean. And it tells us that we, we that, well, let's put it this way, what I learned from this as a Christian, and what I think we need to learn from it today, is a lot of Christians look at the Bible, look at something like the Ten Commandments or whatever, and they think, you know, God gives us all these laws because he doesn't want us to have fun. God is this cosmic killjoy who doesn't want anybody to party or have any fun. And this is just not true. Most of the laws that God gives us, those laws are there to protect us, to protect us from self-destruction. I think some modern people have this idea that God took a bunch of free Jews and gave them the law to enslave them. Of course, it's absolutely the opposite. Daedalus' father gave him these laws not to stop him from having fun, not to put him in a box, but to keep him safe, right? Most of the sins we indulge in end up destroying us in the end. And so Daedalus and Icarus is a great cautionary tale of you know why we need limits and boundaries, because if we have the proper boundaries, then we can truly soar and find the freedom that Daedalus was looking for by building the wings to get them outside. And again, remember, the Jews came out of Egypt, and all they wanted to do was go back to the flesh pots of Egypt. So there is no freedom without some kind of law or limit or restriction. So I think there's a deep theological and sort of moral, ethical message there that all people can learn from. What about another pair, uh, Demeter and Persephone, who, who uh, an important myth for Fraser, in fact. Good. In fact, it is a very, very important myth, and it, it's tied to the corn king and everything else. Okay. Uh, Demeter, her name in, in Latin is Ceres, which is where we get the word cereal from. Demeter is Mother Earth, right? And her daughter, her one and only child, is Persephone. In Latin, her name is Proserpine. And Persephone was this beautiful young girl, and she decided she wanted to remain a virgin and never marry. Right? But Venus, or Aphrodite, 
was getting tired of all these virgins. And so she had her son Cupid shoot an arrow into Hades or Pluto, the god of the underworld. Now, one day, the lovely, innocent Persephone was on the island of Sicily, and she was gathering these flowers. When Pluto came by, or Hades came by, got shot with the arrow, fell in love with her, and had to have her. And he swooped down in his black chariot, pulled by black horses. He grabbed a hold of Persephone and took her down into the underworld with him to be his queen. When Persephone disappeared, Demeter wandered the world, weeping and weeping. And as she wept and wept, the crops began to die because she was quite literally Mother Nature. Finally, every, you know, the whole world was going to be destroyed. And Zeus looked into this and discovered what happened and told Demeter. And Demeter said, if you don't return my daughter to me, I will weep and destroy all of nature and all of the world. And Zeus said, all right, let's, let's make a deal. Let's find your daughter. As long as she has not eaten anything in the underworld, she can be returned to you. But if she's eaten something, then in a sense, she's become part of the underworld. Well, they agreed, and it turned out that Hades had fooled her into eating several, some say three, four, six, but several seeds of the pomegranate, what we used to call the the Chinese apple when I was a kid. It's a weird uh, fruit that has its seeds on the outside and somehow got linked to the idea of death. It's also very red-looking. Anyway, back and forth, they finally haggled, as Greeks are good at. They haggled and came up with a deal. Because she had eaten certain seeds, she would have to spend part of the year in the underworld, but the rest of the year she could spend on the earth with her mother, Demeter. Well, think about it. When Persephone emerged from the underworld and came back to her mother, her mother was so happy that the whole earth sprang into uh, a fertility and the trees are opening. Everything's wonderful. Then as they move on into the next three months, the lazy days, they're quiet, they're lying around. Everything's wonderful. But then as they move into the next season and Demeter knows that Persephone will soon be leaving, she starts to get sad and melancholy. The trees start to, the leaves start to fall from the trees. And then finally, when Persephone is taken under the world to Hades, all of nature dies. It's covered with a blanket of snow, but waiting until the spring when Persephone returns. And so this is a myth. There's a fancy word for it, an etiological myth. Etiology is the study of origins. And so this is the myth that helps us understand the seasonal cycle. And it is the dying and rising quite literally of her. And that's why uh, Fraser talks about it a lot. He also links it to Bacchus, who's the god of the grape, who also sort of dies and is reborn every year. And what we see in this myth is not only the pagan people trying to understand why things are the way they are, which is partly what we learn in Genesis, right? It's not only that, it's an understanding of the seasonal cycle. Again, an understanding of life death and rebirth, and how that is written into nature, but it's also written into our soul, right? And one of the things I talk about, and I speak about this whenever I talk about why Christians should read the pagan classics. Okay, Mark, when I told you about Paul at the Areopagus, I'm not being that, uh, quote, creative. That's, I mean, anybody that believes that Athens and Jerusalem should be brought together, that we should read pagan classics, immediately goes to Paul at the Areopagus. But I believe that I have found a place in the Gospels where Jesus himself does this. And it's in John chapter 12. It is 
Jesus' last public discourse before he has the Last Supper and what John we call the Upper Room Discourse in John. And it is the Passover, and there are pilgrims from all over the world at Jerusalem for the Passover. And a bunch of Greeks come up to Philip, who's got a Greek name, and they say, Philip, we would like to see Jesus. And they go to Jesus and say, Jesus, there are some Greeks that would like to meet you. And Jesus says, the hour has come that the Son of Man may be glorified. And then he speaks these words, except a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it will remain a single seed. But if it is buried, it will produce much fruit. Now, we've all heard that so many times. That's actually the epigram for the Brothers Karamazov. It's one of my favorite uh, verses in the Bible. We've heard it so often, we don't realize that it's not Jewish. You can search the whole Old Testament, and you won't find any metaphor like that. We've got the sower and the seed, but it's totally different than this idea of the seed that dies and is reborn. It's not a Jewish myth. Uh, it's not a Jewish uh, analogy, if you will. The only other place we hear it is in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's great chapter about the resurrection body. But he's writing to the church of Corinth, which is a very, very Greek city. What am I getting at? I don't think that Jews in general would identify with that odd metaphor, but Greeks would. Now, Luke never tells us, not Luke, I'm sorry, John never tells us who these Greeks are, but I would suggest that they, because they're obviously interested in Jewish myths, and, and, and not myths, but Jewish uh, rituals, were part of the Eleusinian Mysteries. That was the most ancient cult in the ancient Greek world. And in the Eleusinian Mysteries, they actually worshipped Persephone and Bacchus and the whole idea of the ritual cycle of death and rebirth. We believe that on their altar, they would put a ripe ear of wheat. Now, if I'm right, and they are from the Eleusinian Mysteries, then Jesus is speaking to them directly. He's saying, all these years, you have worshipped the seed that dies and is buried and is reborn. Look, friends, I am that seed. This is about to happen in real time and space. So I can't prove this, but I do believe that Jesus, in that wonderful moment, is reaching out to these pre-Christian pagan Greeks and saying, look, I am the fulfillment of your oldest rituals and your deepest desire. I am the seed that dies and buried and is reborn. The book is The Myth Made Fact, Reading Greek and Roman Mythology Through Christian Eyes. There is much, much more uh, in the book, Pandora's Box, Prometheus, the Titans versus Olympians. You've got a section on Platonic myths, the allegory of the cave, the ladder of love, and, and so on. got the 12 labors of Hercules. Uh, much, much more to talk about, but we will, uh, we will have to have you on, uh, Lou, when your next book on Plato comes out, as you mentioned. Oh, great. I would summer. love to get out there. I mean, I, I've been in a real Greco-Roman thing. I've even got a book on the Greeks and, and one of the Romans coming out. I think there is so much to learn. And look, Mark, Jesus was not born at some random moment in history. It wasn't like, do you ever play that game when you're a kid, when you spin the globe and wherever your finger lands, you're going to go visit there or something? You always end up in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. It's kind of dangerous. But God didn't arbitrarily choose. Jesus was born in the fullness of time. And so it's not just my whatever uh, cultural uh, Western hood that makes me think the Greek and Roman myths are important. Now, of course, all cultures are important, but Jesus chose to become incarnate in this moment of Greco-Roman culture. And so I think that, you know, it used to be marked that you were not a literate person if you didn't know the history of Rome. 
because it was during the rise and fall of Rome. The end of the Roman Republic and the beginning of the Roman Empire is exactly the moment when Jesus was born, during the Pax Romana. And so I think it behooves us to study these myths, because again, somehow Christ becomes connected to these things by the moment and place that he chose to become incarnate. Professor Marcos, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much. Enjoyed being here. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930. Thank you.